Welcome back to the Get a Grip on Lighting Dark Sky series. That's right. On today's show, we have Dr. Ronald Gibbons. Now, this guy's got a lot of stuff on his bio here, but let's just read a quick couple things. He is the director of the Center for Infrastructure-Based Safety Systems at Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. Uh, yeah, and he is also um, sponsored by the Federal Highway Administration in the United States. Look, the guy's really smart. He's Canadian, so, you know, got his degree at Waterloo. We had a good talk about Ontario, our province, that we, he calls home as well still. But you know what, folks? Uh, before Jane and I, ha- before we share our conversation that Jane and I had with Dr. Gibbons, we got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, baby. That's KeystoneTech.com. That's right. They're going dark sky. They're coming with us on this journey. We're going to have a little journey into the darkness. That's right. Um, Jane and I are going to launch another podcast, it's a separate show. It's coming out. Yeah, early in the new year, let's say. Got a lot of plans for this dark sky thing. We want to start another lighting boom, folks. And so when you do that, you go to keystonetech.com. The boom, folks, that's right. Keep it easy with Keystone. Keep it easy. Light made easy. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. I want to thank everybody on the board of directors of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and all the members. We're going to take this journey. We're going to have education and evolve. That's right. If you're not involved already, what are you waiting for, man? It's a heck of a program. So go to naild.org. All my people are taking it. I get the emails all the time. Hey, just finish this module. Just finish that module. Yeah, that's right. Go to nailed.org. And if you're a member, sign up for Evolve right now. It's free. But for right now, Dr. Ronald Gibbons on Get a Grip on Lighting, Dark Sky Series. Welcome back, folks, to the special release. This is the Dark Sky Series. Hosted by myself, but also the great and powerful Jane Slade. The purpose of this show is for us to, yeah, I copied Joe Rogan. Okay, sorry. So the purpose of this show, though, is to um, kind of build the ethical case for Dark Sky amongst, you know, people who sell light bulbs every day. And I don't say professionals because not all of us are professionals. Some of us are counter counter sales guys. Some of us are, are outside sales reps. Some of us are inside. Sometimes we're in warehousing or whatever. And so this show is about all of us to start thinking about the dark sky. Ron Gibbons, welcome to the well, the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Dark Sky series with Jane Slade. Great, thank you, Jane. Hello, Ron. I uh, it's so nice to see you again, at least virtually. I think the last time I saw you was at Sulk in San Diego, 2019. Um, so that was a while ago and you were presenting on soybeans, uh, soybean plants, uh, which we, I have questions about that. We'll get into it. Um, but I want to, we have decided that we want to start the show by asking each guest if you have a personal experience that you had under the night sky, uh, some sort of interaction that you had with darkness, which is so much harder to find on this earth, that was moving to you, either in your work, your personal life, or in how you think. Um, if you have a personal dark sky experience that you want to share with us. I, I uh, have that fairly regularly, actually. I, I own a piece of property in Northern Ontario that is uh, backs onto a dark sky reserve. And so the back of my property is a dark sky reserve and the front of my property is a lake. And so many evenings uh, I end up, I end up uh, sitting on my dock in the lake, staring up at the stars and, you know, enjoying an adult beverage with my wife and sitting and chatting. And so I regularly have dark sky uh associations and actually the cool thing about it's right on the border of uh where you can see the northern lights so Mm. we've sat down there on the dock before and seen the northern lights off in the distance and you can you can enjoy that uh that's a pretty spectacular experience so you know i'm from ontario right um so i'm thinking you're talking about north of napanee where are you talking about Uh, i'm not that north i'm i'm up uh gravenhurst bracebridge area okay yeah yeah i know exactly what you're talking about Yep. You know, it's funny because I think Canadians are very privileged um, when it comes to this dark sky problem. Uh, oh, yeah. Because Canada is enormous. 
and there's so many places that where you can go and they're not dark sky preserves, but in any other country, they would be a dark sky preserve. Um, it's just that there's so many areas like this that we don't really have to worry that much. Um, my father-in-law has a cottage in Ontario that, um, backs onto a provincial park. You canoe for a day or two and you're in deep wilderness, my man. And you can see the Milky way with no problem at all. Um, many yep. nights, uh, it depends on the clarity and there's other things, factors that go into it, but there's many times with my children and that when we've canoed out there and it's just spectacular. And I want to say that, you know, maybe I've taken that for granted when I, I'm so passionate about this dark sky issue. I think Jane, maybe I've, t- and I'm going to give the show back to you here, but I think I've, in my mind, I'm assuming when we started this, that everybody knows what I'm talking about, but oh. I'm not, I'm not so sure that's true. You know, I've seen that I've seen the Northern Lights. I've seen the beautiful vistas of stars that would blow your mind away. Yeah, and I, I just I don't. A, yeah, Ron, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I have a, I have a scar on my forehead that reminds me of dark skies, because I was out camping with a, I think it was grade eight, with a teacher who didn't want us to bring any flashlights to experience this. And we were in Alberta at the time. And when you don't have a flashlight in the dark, you walk through the woods with your hands in front of you like this. My hands got too far apart and a tree came right up through the middle. So I was, I was, but I was, I was in such a dark environment. You can imagine I didn't see a tree right in front of me. And I think of all the people in the world who have never had that experience to be in that dark of an environment. Uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty special experience to be sort of surrounded with that kind of and a dimness. On top of that, you know, it's funny. I was in, I, I was, um, I did a. There's something called Air Cadets in Canada. I'm, I don't know if you guys have cadets in the U.S. or whatever, but I was part of the Air Cadets for many years uh, in my childhood, from from 12 to 18, and um, I did a search and survival course in Northern Ontario and we used red flash flashlights with like, you take off the cover of it's a military flashlight and you put a red flashlight over top of it. And then you find your way with that. And uh, yeah, the ability to see in the dark is actually something that um, other guests on the show were talking about as being part of learning to become a human in a way, like Mm -hmm. not being able to see in the dark is a function not because you can't see in the dark. It's because you've never tried to see in the dark. It's like a it's mm-hmm. like a muscle that is exercised, and people can learn to to see in the dark better the more with more exposure to it. So it, it's interesting that we we're sharing these experiences. But you touch this you touch a soft spot for me, Ron. <laughs> Jane. Well, I've even recently heard that we are weakening our pupils because we're never really getting outside of this sort of moderate amount of light. So we never get to the the total darkness and we never get to that really bright light. So actually there are very iris pupil. I mean, it's probably a muscle. I don't really know. Um, it but it's, it's weak because we're constantly in this mediocre amount of light that sort of is uh, kind of melatonin producing because it's not enough to release serotonin a lot of the time. So it's a muscle problem in our eyes and it's also a hormone problem in our bodies. Um, But let's just jump to the start of the show, Ron, which is I want to introduce people to who you are and what you do. So um, I see that you are the director of the Center for Infrastructure-Based Safety Systems. Uh, We're going to want to dig into that at Virginia Tech Transportation Institute, which actually helps describe it a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your role? I, uh, yeah, my, I've, got a, I've got a research program here that's focused on all the safety systems associated with the built environment and transportation. So um, pavement markings, signage, lighting, all the things that you build onto the roadway is, is my research area. And now we're getting more and more into the integration with automated vehicles and and those sorts of things and trying to build the performance box around these systems, both for humans and for vehicles, and um, try to try to describe the um, try to really just define what 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 optimal performance is in these systems. And so my personal research area is, is so I, I manage that research program, but I, my personal research area is all roadway lighting based. 
So my, my research program is entirely focused on um, developing lighting approaches to lighting that, that really optimize. So we're trying to provide maximum benefit for, for, for the users of the space, but minimize all the negatives. So get mm-hmm. rid of things like, like trespass and get rid of sky glow and look at, look at, at technologies that we can implement that, um, really, really, you know, the, 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 the uh, really put light where we need it, when we need it. So those two aspects of both where and when are the things that we're concerned about. And that's really the, the theme song of my group is that we, if you don't need light, don't use it. If you need it, use it, but, but control it. And that's, that's really what we're focused on. I really can't underscore enough how much I appreciate your stance in the industry because I feel that you back up your findings with uh, research, but that you don't come down either way that more light is safer or that, um, you know, darkness is the only way to go. I feel like you really have a middle ground that is super important and is a bridge in the industry. Um, I would say that most dark sky advocates are not against light or light for safety, but I do think sometimes in the lighting industry that there is an overemphasis on light as needed for safety and that, that we've lost some of our bearings. Um, so I, I appreciate where you come from, which is really trying to find that middle ground, which leads me to my next question. I saw your webinar uh, recently on October 1st through the IES, Roadway Lighting, Light and Health. And you opened with the definition from the World Health Organization, um, which I'll read for you on what health is, um, which is health is a state of complete physical mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And that's kind of how you framed that talk in terms of lighting for safety is a health issue, as well as lighting that disrupts your normal circadian rhythms is a health issue. And that's kind of how you opened up your talk. So I would love to hear more about um, what you see some of those conflicts being currently in the industry. Yeah, we we really view lighting as a balance. It's there's it, it there there's there's the balance of the good and the bad. And so from from me and and it's task it's really task related. So um you know, if I'm if I'm driving down the street in my truck and I want to make sure I don't hit a pedestrian, there's that health aspect that that me as a driver doesn't want to does has to do the task of not hitting a pedestrian. That's healthy mm-hmm. for the pedestrian, obviously. It's healthy for me. I don't have to go through the mental anguish of having hit a pedestrian. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when my task changes to walking into my house, I now don't want that that street lighting to impact my my new task, which is existing in my house and and enjoying the evening or relaxing or getting a good night's sleep or or having a candlelight dinner with my wife. I, I don't want a blazing street light coming in my window when that happens. So along the way I have to balance those two. As a human being I have to balance those two things. As an industry we have to balance those needs as well. So I've got the needs from from a driver. I've as an industry, as a lighting practitioner, as a as a lighting agency, I would have to provide the lighting for the for the for the uh, the task of the driver. But I also have to think about the the task of the person in the house, and I have to think about that too to provide them with the lighting for the or the lack of lighting for that task. And so those mm-hmm. are the, that's the balance that I have to work with in that in that environment. Yes. I I even like to extend it to not uh, when and why, but who, what, where, when and why I think is really important for lighting. Because, you know, if you're going to have a 16 foot high pole light um, area light that's going into a second floor residence, um, that's an important who that may not be considered in um, all lighting design factors. So 
I, I also know that you've written over 80 published papers on roadway lighting, photometry, and target visibility on the topics of light and human health, spectral effects of new light sources on roadways, visibility of police vehicles, uh, soybean plants, and we can dig into all of this, but I just want to start. What's the most fascinating piece of research that you are going through right now? Well, we're we're doing we're we're doing some interesting work because of my I have a test facility here that is so I've got a two and a half mile long test road that we use for a lot of things, but part of that is is because because it exists, it's a full scale test road. I've got a variable lighting system on it, so. I've got six different lighting systems mounted out there right now that of a flick of a switch, I can switch from, from this CCT to this CCT or this uniformity to this uniformity. And it's just, I can, I can just switch those. So the, our, our research focus has always been full scale applied research. It's not, it's not in a laboratory. There's, there's some of that going on, but, but we really try and take, laboratory results and put them into the real world. So we're doing some work right now looking at uh, at some of the more traditional definitions of light and health, so melatonin and some of those things that are going on, which which we're enjoying. And we've got some good partnerships going with that, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we've we've done, you mentioned the soybean study. If, if you can imagine a, yeah. a study where you're running a, an automated lighting measurement robot in a farmer's field at two o'clock in the morning in Illinois and measuring lighting. And then you go back there six months later and harvest soybeans. Like that's a pretty diverse project for, for what a lighting person typically experiences. So um, I can't really focus on one particular project. Mm -hmm. There's just been so many cool different aspects of things that we've been able to study as part of this, that, uh, that it is all kind of meaningful. And, and so our job now is really trying to meld all these into a, into a, uh, a process where we can really, really provide guidance that we need to go going, moving forward. Getting to that soybean study, uh, Ron, I got to say that was haunting to me that light at night, artificial light at night, Allen could actually delay yield. I think it was up to seven weeks maturation and delay. Um, and then uh, there, the yield of those soybean plants that were closer to the road lighting was also reduced. So, um, and that those plants tend to grow longer and leaner. Um, yeah. So it's, it's as if, you know, this scares me so much because we're consumers, plants are producers. We absolutely need producers to be on this planet. And we have no idea how those changes are going to cascade through um, the producers of our planet. So I find that haunting. Um, and what were some of the repercussions of this study that you did? How did uh, the industry take it? Were there any changes that happened? Yeah. So so the background on that, there's there's actually a couple different plants that 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 react this way. Rice and soybeans are the two primary ones. Um, what a soybean plant does is is the the nature of the soybean plant is such that it it uses the it uses to to trigger it to flower is when the night starts getting longer. So it uses the solstice to trigger it to flower. And so if it doesn't get the solstice, if it doesn't realize the solstice happens, then it will never flower and it won't produce a bean. So in a roadway lighting situation, that plant never sees darkness. And so it never, it never causes it to trigger and flower. So it just keeps growing. So at, when, a, when a plant flowers, it, it flowers and then it creates a bean and it takes all of its energy from the plant itself and it puts it into creating that bean. So the plant effectively kills itself to, to make the bean. But if it never flowers, it just keeps growing. So we were in fields with with six foot high soybean plants, where in the rest of the field where it wasn't experienced lighting, the plants were about two feet high. And so, um, so the interesting thing there. So what we were able to do with that is really measuring measuring that lighting and and really kind of defining where the limits of of that impact on the plant was. We can overlay that with the lighting measurements we took and say, okay light trespass above this level into that field will cause issues with these plants. So now we can we can actually develop a specification that says, okay, along the roadway here, don't put light in the field. 
And so, you know, it, it led to putting on um, some uh, house side shields on some of the luminaires to block light going into the field. It developed the new standard. And so there's these limitations that we've got now in, in those areas. So that was on intensity and color or just intensity? Um, the interesting thing is we did it both under high pressure sodium and, um, and uh, solid state. And the uh, the impact was really related to the 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 par the photo photosynthetic active radiation, and uh, so we were able to calculate it. And the differences between CCTs were so minimal as compared mm -hmm. to the light intensity. It, it was really yeah. it was really, the most important thing was the light intensity, not so much the color. Mm -hmm. Well, I always like to say, you know, if someone wakes you up in the middle of the night with a bright red light versus a dim little blue light, I think you'll have a different feeling about the, the bright red light. So intensity yeah. is more important for sure. Well, yeah. And, and in any of these studies, the things that we're looking at, there's really four dimensions. There's, there's color, there's intensity, there's timing. Um, and timing is two components. One is duration and one is time of day. So whenever you're experiencing mm -hmm. any of these things, those are, those are the four components you've got to consider in the in the study ron um this is a mind blow brother <laughs> okay so just one quick question and then because um we went on back to jane here for a second but i just want to ask you I, I went to a hydroponics contra uh convention not in 2019 october not 2020 unfortunately um but um there was like a merge a merging of um, academia, contractors, like the industry with academia on how to grow indoors hydroponically. And there was all this science and all this sort of stuff. But as a lighting distributor and somebody that sells light bulbs to all manner of different hydroponic facilities and talking to the, the managers of those facilities, they simply say like HPS has such a high lumens per watt, you know, and that's why it's the best for growing. And sometimes we mix in some metal halide, like a different color stream or whatever. And then you talk to guys that do the growth chambers where they university study corn and soybeans. And yep. they, they talk about, they use uh, VHO, T12 VHO, the highest light output they can get per foot um, based on 1980s lighting technology. You understand what I mean? Like how much light, yeah. we need as much light as possible. It's a growing chamber. There's just like rows of lights like this over every yeah. surface inside the growing chamber. And we need VHO, very high output. Oh, why can't you switch now? Because then we can't compare our results in the past to our results in the future. So we still need F96 T12 VHO. You understand what I mean? We still want those yeah. bulbs in the growth chamber because we want to be able to compare stuff that we've been doing over the years. And if we change the lighting to LED, we don't know how to compare it or whatever. But for most of those people, they talk about the most amount of light possible. As much light as you can get onto those leaves, that will make it grow. And what you're saying is basically the reverse for this roadway stuff, hmm. where it's like, well, you know, there's also the cycle of producing food that involves a certain amount of darkness and a certain amount of light and timing and solstices and all this sort of stuff. How did we not know this automatically in our heads? It seems so natural. Like when you said that to me, it seems so well, obvious. Yeah, I, th I think there is. And I think, um, but it, the other thing it's, it's specific to the plant type. Yeah. So in some plants don't need a darkness break and you can throw as much light out as possible. And you'll find now that a lot of growers are, are actually kind of using about a hot pink light to, uh, to, uh, in grow chambers. There's sort of a, a purplish light that they're using in those, in those environments as well. Um, so there are some plants that aren't as effective as that. Soybean happens to be one, but you're right. If you, if you think about the, 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 uh, the, uh, biology of everything you would expect that the same way we need a we as humans need darkness you would expect the plants and animals need darkness as well and that's you know that, that leads us to the to the flora discussion is you know as we start looking at some of the data associated with that there's things like um um 
birds that will um, uh, in in a bird that's associated with the, with with roadway lighting. Uh, robins, for example, if they're if they're close to a roadway, they'll start their morning song about two hours earlier than than they might if they were they were in the forest. So are they not getting as much rest? Now the interesting thing is if you look at that, uh, those those birds typically have two families. So um, the early bird catches the worm, I guess. But that's that's um, you know so so but there. Hang on, did you just say did you just say that the birds that live near the light are more promiscuous than the birds that don't there, live there's near the There's the possibility that, that birds that live towards <laughs> the light are more promiscuous. Come, come on, man. Like, <laughs> hey, come I'll, on. The data, man. It wasn't my study. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Jane, get us um, out of this trap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right, Ron, I actually need your help on something, which is that I have a lighting designer that I'm working with, and he is uh, basically it's being mandated by the municipality that they need to have, um, I believe four foot candles on a crosswalk. Um, and he, he doesn't want to put that much. It's, it's way too much. Um, and, uh, and I know that in, in my work, uh, in my, in my role, we have actually seen sometimes where LEDs have actually created blind spots at crosswalks so that the, the LED, lighting and the optics is, is more complicated than most people can really know just jumping into it so that you can actually create blind spots. Um, but so this particular lighting designer, um, we're looking for a study that actually showed that actually above two foot candles, which is the typical recommendation and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but above two foot candles actually showed that the pedestrians walking across the crosswalk um, in the four foot candle range actually felt less safe because the perceived sense of safety was affected by the idea of why is this lit so brightly? What am I not knowing? What am I not perceiving? Um, so I'm not sure if you know that particular side of the study, but I'd love to pick into whatever thoughts you have about that, because I think we are in the process of over-regulating um, and, and commanding too much light into design out of a fear of safety, but then there's a diminishing return where it's not actually more safe. So I hand it over to you with all those ideas. Well, um, I haven't seen the study where people's perceptions on the four-foot candles is high. I did a study that came back with two-foot candles or 20 lux. Um, I think many moons ago, like 1970s, uh, they did a study in Philadelphia that worked with, with, and they came back with 40 locks as being the optimal. And um, now they came back with it being vertical. And that's the tricky thing here is you have to remember that we're talking vertical luminance in the crosswalk, not horizontal in the crosswalk. And so we we did a study like that and, and similar here. And now this was pre-solid state. So this is uh, 17, 18 years ago. And what we found was that that in for a crosswalk, specifically a crosswalk, if you provide 20 vertical locks on the face of the person walking across the road, vehicles approaching from this side, that was the optimal detection distance. And why the vertical locks is important is because if you don't light that pedestrian enough, mm-hmm. you if it, so years ago they they'd say, well, you put the pedestrian in silhouette, you light behind the crosswalk. That's much better. So if you imagine you've got a a, a pedestrian that's very very low luminance here, and the vehicle comes along, then the headlights start to hit. Headlights hit, and as they approach, this this face of this person starts coming up from from dark to bright. And there's a point where if you've got a bright background, they actually match the background and the person will disappear. And visibly, they lose the contrast and they disappear. So that's mm-hmm. why we say, okay, 20 vertical lux on the face. Um, and But you're right. I, I can see the perception that if, that if this thing's lit up and, and why is this, why, why am I being highlighted here is one of the issues that, um, that can come up. The... Um, so, you know, the 20 vertical lux probably came from us. I can understand the 40 lux being too high because mm-hmm. at the same time, you, you, you really want to design a lighting system that doesn't make people uncomfortable. They don't want to, people typically don't want to be highlighted. You're walking downtown. You don't want to, 
you don't want a spotlight following you around as you, as you move around. And that's the kind of thing. And so those are the things that, that we're, we're dealing with. And in particular, if you, there's been some designs where they kind of do baller designs from the side, it's and things like that. And what you end up doing is throwing the light onto the pedestrian as they're walking into it. And mm -hmm. so you also don't want, um, you don't want that because suddenly they've got glare and they're and they've they've got diminished visibility of of what's happening. So our approach has really been trying to specify a lighting design level that can be integrated into the natural run of the luminaires. So you're you're providing enough light on the roadway, but not having to do special light for the roadway. And that mm -hmm. that way you can work that right into the to the cycle and 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 so to to be effective, you you almost want the pedestrian not to know they're lighted. You want them to feel safe, but you don't want them to be highlighted. Okay. Right. So I have the special um, uh, uh, benefit of being the guy who calls out names and says things about associations and organizations. And uh, I've, been, I've been doing that for years, Ron. And so here's my concern. Number one, you, you don't have any maximum light levels. You have minimum light levels all the time in light, right? Mm -hmm. So no one ever says like the maximum light level at this application should be this. It's always minimum. So it's assumed that if you just do more, it's better. The more the merrier, yeah. right? There's also no lighting metric, which talks about uniformity or about uh, the opposite of uniformity, contrast, where it's like, what you want to create is this number on the contrast scale, right? So, because what it'll do is if you keep the light in this way and that way, then the person walking across the street can see enough and the person that's driving the car gets alerted that there's somebody on the street there, right? And we can do this with lighting effects and you see it all the time in theater. It's almost like you should take guys that do lighting for musical theater and theater and say, make a crosswalk for us where everybody would see the person crossing the street, but also so that, you know, when you're on a stage, you can't see the crowd, right? But also so that the person who's on the stage can also see uh, like enough around them so that they feel comfortable. What does that crosswalk look like? You know? And yeah. it, you know, so from a lighting perspective, it's like, oh yeah, you're going to do this. You get contrast and uniformity and then not having that min and max. It's like, we need a number that on the scale of contrast versus uniformity goes like this. And then the light level goes like this or something, some sort of box, you know, you just, this is what you need here. And it's not, it's three dimensional. It's not two dimensional. It's not one or the other. They have to be together. Yeah, I agree. And, th and those are the things we're starting to work on. Um, the, um, the 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 idea behind it is um you know our our metrics our metrics in the past have been what we've sort of traditional metrics illuminance luminance even is a is a was a huge step for a lot of people to move to luminance of of roadways surfaces so um you know we're trying to look for those metrics and those are the things we're starting to look at you know suddenly suddenly with with solid state lighting we found that 4000K provided higher visibility than other, other CCTs, but it doesn't do it for gray objects. It only does it for colored objects. So suddenly we're realizing that it's color contrast, that, the, that the, this 4000K is becoming, and I want to move away from the 4000K thing, a balanced spectrum of red-blue mm. seems to provide a benefit for visibility in terms of color contrast. So those are all metrics we're starting to work with and understand. So, for example, we we're doing a study right now looking at um, a special luminaire, the the luminaires um, that were used to relight Niagara Falls. They were very very narrow beam. They're very very slim angled angle things. So we said, well, you know what, we can do this with a crosswalk. And so we're actually highlighting a crosswalk with this very, very narrow beam light. And some of those things are kind of interesting as we're trying to play around with these ideas. The, the other thing, the really interesting that we found with the crosswalk study, and this was years ago, is if we added more light behind the pedestrian, it actually made the pedestrian harder to see. And that's all mm -hmm. contrast. So to work towards a contrast metric, we tried to do that a little bit with um, 
a few years ago, uh, IES dabbled into what was called small, small target visibility, where the, where the lighting was assessed based on the visibility of a small object in the roadway. And that was, that's, that metric still exists in the documentation, but it's, it's been downplayed a little bit. Um, and it was just for that because you couldn't really measure it. And so the, the, the links to a metric is be able to measure it in the field. And that's that's one of the, the limitations of these things and why we always end up kind of heading back towards some of our more traditional metrics is because we can easily measure those. And those are the things that we're working on now is to figure out. But with CCD cameras and, and things like that, we're starting to move out of that limitation that we can actually get into some of these more exotic metrics. Um, as to the as to the maximum luminance, yeah, we agree that that uh, and what we've always relied on with with um, setting maximums has been the fact that people don't want, we've assumed that people don't want to pay for more energy than they have to. So there's a, that assumption is incorrect. Well, and, and that's what we're, that's what we're gathering. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Cause people just all their, like when they're changing their roadway lighting or they're changing their outdoor lighting, they're only thinking about the rebate they get from it. Well, and that's, that's rebate. And that's certainly, but if you're... No, no, but hang on, hang on. The higher the wattage of the LED bulb, the higher the rebate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's because that's more energy savings. So, and that's... No, less. That's it's the, less if you put more wattage. Well, so, like, you get, like, a, whatever, in, in Ontario, you'll get, like, a $70 rebate for a 50-watt outdoor light, but you get, like, a $150 rebate for a 200-watt outdoor light. So, the more so light... The more lumens you use in LED, the higher the rebate is. So, well, that's are they uh, the the assumption behind that must be that that well, you're only using a 50 watt because it's replacing something that's equivalent to the. 50 no, watt. we way overlight everything. My company way overlights everything because the uh, rebate dictates that. Yeah, like I'm a, I, I sell lighting every day. I don't sell dark sky lighting at all because it's impossible yeah. to sell right now. Yeah. But I mean, we, we, we sell, oh, the rebate, 250 watt metal halide. If I put the 300 watt, it's 250 buck rebate. If I put the 100 watt, it's only a $50 rebate. Oh, the guy wants to get the $300 rebate. Put the higher well, light level out there. So there's a, so yeah. And that's, well, and you're, you're highlighting one of the problems that we've had. We've made this assumption that people don't want to put in more than they have to. And, but we've got programs now that are, that are, that are defining that. There's a nature of roadway lighting or of any, any lighting. And the nature of the human experience with lighting is what we call the rise in plateau. So you get, if, if this is performance on this scale and this is lighting level. Sorry, I, I do this. I, I draw graphs. All the, This is what I do. So... I've got this this rise, and I draw them so they're related to me instead of you. So sorry about that. Mm. But so I've got this rise as I increase the lighting level. I've got this rise in performance, rise in performance, and then eventually there's a point where it knees over and it goes flat. That you've gotten to the point, and there's there's physiological reasons for that. The eye performance. There's uh, these funky visual laws called called Rico and Weber's law that kind of define some of this stuff. But basically, it rises, it rises, rises, and it goes flat. And so what we're trying to do is set our lighting levels at the point where that knee happens. And so we're saying, okay, we've, we've maximized the, the performance and we've minimized the light level. And that's, 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 that's our minimum light level. And then we, we go on the assumption that nobody wants to be out here because this is more energy. But now you're highlighting a program that, well, this is causing the problem because people are getting out here where we really want to be back here at this minimum. And there's also the, uh, Jane, you can attest to this as well, where there, you know, people just assume that more light is better. And then you have the insurance industry, you have property managers that are concerned about liability and they're going from 258. The cat's part of the show, by the way, Ron. Okay. What's the cat's name? <laughs> Ferdinand. Ferdinand. Yes. So yeah, he's uh, a mama's boy. <laughs> so the people listening, there's uh, Hopefully using 3000 K luminaires. Yeah. So the, uh, but yeah, you know, there's like a, um, there's like a, something we have to overcome in the industry and then into the, into the general public that, that more light is not good. Actually, there's a point at which where the knee bends, right? Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that we're, we've got another study going on right now that we're, we're really trying to find the barriers. So adaptive lighting is, is one of our, 
one of our critical interests. Okay, so adaptive lighting is taking, and and this is where we so we 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 can talk about spectrum, we can talk about intensity, but then we bring in timing, and so this is really taking a control system now and saying, okay, this much light isn't needed anymore. Let's dim it. And so um, some cities have adapted this, uh, taken this really, really quickly. Cambridge, Massachusetts has done it. Uh, Tucson, Arizona. That's where I, I live. I live. I'm, I'm talking to you from Cambridge. I could talk to you about that project for sure, but please go on. Okay. So our, our, well, our project is studying Cambridge and we're really trying yeah. to find the, find the barriers of what's causing people to be scared about adaptive lighting. And so we've we're now we were up there in September. Finally, COVID broke enough so that we could actually re-enter Massachusetts. Um, my guys got a got a COVID test, and they as long as they had a valid COVID test within seventy two hours of arriving in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So they actually sat at the border of Connecticut and Massachusetts for two hours waiting for waiting for a phone call. But uh, um, so anyway, another another long story. But the. The, what we're looking for there is the barrier. So what's causing people to be scared about it? And and uh, so we're looking at crime rate. We're looking at crash rate. We're looking at people's perceptions. We're looking, we're trying to talk to the utilities. We're trying to talk to the town managers. We're trying to talk to the police force. And we're trying to talk to the public to go to the, the bicycle association and say, so what do you think of this adaptive lighting? Half of them probably don't even know it adapts. Um, and that's really, that's really one of the important things. And if, if you dim your lighting half the time, you don't even know you've dimmed it. And, um, so those are the things that we're now trying to figure out with adaptive lighting is, is how to implement these lower lighting levels. And really, because, you know, Cambridge, uh, the numbers I've seen on Cambridge is they're getting 80% energy savings based on their dimming of when, when they dim their light at night. And, you know, it ties in with, with, uh, melatonin suppression and ties with so many things that we can control. We can really control some of the negatives of light by, by putting in timing and, and putting in adaptive controls. And that's one of the things we're really focused on. Yeah. So I, we, I live in Harvard square and there's a, a pretty famous case study in Harvard square um, where the lighting levels actually dim down at midnight. I believe it's 30%. Um, or maybe it's 30% at 10 p.m. and then it's another 50% at midnight. Um, and so, or a total of 50% at midnight. And those numbers, we, we would have to check them, but I'm pretty sure those are what they are. Um, I've, and I've, and I've I always- I've actually got the dinner schedule, so. Oh, oh, there you go, there you go. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I always say that it's a very forward thinking idea to turn the lights down or off in this age of LED lighting. Um, and that, you know, when personally, when I hear the words energy savings, I kind of want to gag because for, for me, what is most upsetting about the current state of lighting in the world is that we're triggering wildlife and that one light fixture has the ability to cause light pollution up to 120 miles away. And so, you know, for the most part, people, I'm a resident of Cambridge. It's very rare that I'm walking around Cambridge needing city lights after midnight. Now, I know there are shift workers and people who really truly have a need, but it is certainly a reduced need for the population. And so I do think adaptive lighting controls are going to be a super important tool, but you're right. It's it's all about trying to get people behind it. And, you know, it's a very scary thing for people to think about reduced light levels, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. It's just a scary thought. It's a hard idea to sell. Yeah, and that's really you know. I, I, I've, yeah. Sorry, I, I've I've talked to I've talked to people in New York, and they're like, "Well, we're the city that never sleeps." Well, okay, maybe that's because you got your lights on all the time. Um, but um, sorry, that was a little bit of sarcasm. <laughs> it's but, okay. Feel free to <laughs> right. let rip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I also yeah. I heard in the back of an elevator, sorry to interrupt, but I was at a conference in New York and I heard in the back of an elevator these two guys saying, Yeah, New York got it all wrong because they installed five thousand K LED lighting everywhere. And I can tell you that my friends live in Brooklyn and there's this high intensity blue light streaming in their windows all the time. So yeah. uh New York could serve to do a little lighting revolution in terms of um how they light their streets at night. Amen to that. 
And and what we're finding is is the overall intensity of the light is by far more critical than actually the color. Uh, mm. Other than this benefit, we're seeing the safety benefit, but some of the other stuff that we're seeing is less color related. It's all intensity related. So you, the intensity that you're experiencing at that time is is really critical. You know the the you're you're getting as much. Um, uh, in a lot of cases, people are are getting as much light off of their cell phone when they when they read their cell phone before they go to sleep. Uh, they're getting as much of a light as they are off of off of a street light. But at the same time, the whole experience we've got to control the whole lighted experience and make people understand mm-hmm. that it's okay. We're, we'll deal with the street light because that's that's an agency thing. But you also need to start thinking about your your t. You know, I, I don't have a TV in my yeah, but it's still you know what though it's still part of the same problem, right? So. Oh. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't buy that. You know, people write off the street lights because everyone has their cell phone in their face. That's the number one excuse in the lighting industry, by the way. Is the it? Number one, okay. Yeah, the number one excuse to do nothing is because it's not the light street lights. It's the cell phones well, in everybody's faces. It's not our fault. It's their fault. And, uh, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't think that's well, a... And I- I'm I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned about the intensity because we're doing we're doing we're wasting we're wasting energy. We're wasting we we don't know what the impacts we have on on flora and fauna are. You know, we've got a few examples now that we understand the flora issues and the fauna issue is is just coming to light. We've got a few examples there um, that we're trying to figure out. There's um, you know I'm I'm. I'm totally against lighting bridges, for example. All those decorative light on the underside of a bridge. I've, I've, mm-hmm. uh, I was at an Allen conference and was publicly retweeted that I declared that bridges need to be beautiful during the day and invisible at night, and that's kind of what I believe. Because those lighting systems, we don't know what's happening to the fish in the water and in the in the river underneath us, and those are the things. And that's that's not lighting for a purpose. That's lighting to say, hey, look, I made a pretty bridge. Um, and, and so there's, there's all sorts of things like that. And so, you know, I believe the agencies need to control what they can control and, you know, it is spectrum, it is intensity. Um, but, but it might not, it might not deal with the whole epidemiology of the problem because we have all these other factors that come in. So there's, and to your point, there's not one single factor causing any issue. And so we can deal with what we can deal with. So where Um, we don't have facts, though, where we don't have facts, right? So we use inductive and deductive reasoning to decide what to do, right? Where we don't have facts. We don't know something to be true. We either use inductive reasoning, like everybody wear masks and we're going to lock everybody down and that's going to solve the problem we think. And who knows, you know, you have these different, then you start measuring results as you go and you do different things. And then there's deductive reasoning which is a type of re- a reasoning where you say, well, obviously, if we take this and we understand there's an effect here, we don't need to know exactly what the effect is, but by through deduction, um, we know that there's, there's going to be an effect here. And we talked to Dr. Zeebel Ashore, who said there for sure is effect on, 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 aqua, on um, fish and, and that in, in, yeah. the, in the rivers. There's an effect. We don't know exactly what it is, but we, we, I think we know enough to make policy I think we know enough to, to start, you know, uh, we don't need to know everything first. We need to know that this, this is doing this. Let's reduce it and continue to study it over here or whatever, but let's start pulling back from this over lighting everything. And well, and that's, you go ahead. that's, that's really, the, that's really the goal is, is even in areas there's, 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 a, there's, you know, there's things we know physiologically that, that animals need precise. And so we need to control those things. Um, and there's enough evidence that we can we can move that forward. And that's what we're trying to do now is to figure out, again, back to the whole concept of balance. Um, I would never, you know, we've got, we've got human usability, human safety on one side. You've got animals, you've got sleeping, you've got, you know, you've got all these things, energy consumption, you've got all these things that are kind of in there, even, even user perception and, and people's own comfort in the space, their, their mental health. There's, there's all sorts of things that are happening in this space and balancing all those things is really the key to it. And so there, 
I, I would never, you know, there, there would be people that argue that, well, pedestrian safety and, and roadway lighting safety is by far higher than um, waterfowl refuges where, where a freeway happens to go through. I would completely disagree with that. At that point, we, 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 put the, we, we make the balance. We've now got the technology. And remember, we control technology and things. Like, it's only been around for five or so years, so in, in greater availability. So, but now we're starting to break into the technology that allows us to say, okay, during waterfowl nesting period, we dim the lights down or, or turn them off mm. or something like that. And we put up a sign that says, hey, by the way, the lights for the next two miles are turned off because we have water birds that are, that are nesting here. And we're making, those we're making those water birds as important as you are. And that's really the thing that people need to understand is that, that the human, we're, we're an integrated, the humans are integrated in with the rest of society and the red, not society, the rest of the, the earth. And we've got to put the policies and the programs and the and the technology we've developed into play so that we can bring all those animals that we've been suppressing and plants and whatever else up to the same level as us. Did not plan on going there, but there you go. I've done What's it. What's good so. for the goose is good for I the gander. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I, I think that the uh, human health will be the greatest indicator will be wildlife health in the coming decades. So if we don't protect wildlife, whom we are completely dependent upon, whether we like it or not, we will feel the impacts, uh, especially given the landmark UN report that came out in 2019, which is saying that we're looking at up to 1 million species going extinct in the coming decades. And, you know, we've changed a factor that's never been changed before. And to your point, Ron, I feel that we have these control systems. So let's start to rapidly experiment with them. And I think it's totally time to say, look, we have a species here. Let's see how we can support it. And let's communicate that to the community and um, create that kind of conversation. And that actually yeah. leads me to another another point, which is that, you know, we have these constant um, RPs that come out, uh, codes that are written by either institutions or cities. Um, and I'm finding that the light levels are seldom going down. Um, so that really we're, we're almost legislating for light levels to go up. So how, how do we, I, your research is very important to kind of bring it back down. And I appreciate your voice as, as someone who is both advocating for roadway safety as well as the health of wildlife. But how do we get everyone on board as we kind of look at all these recommendations with higher and higher light levels? Well, that's, that's the trick. <laughs> So take take IESRP8. I'm I'm a I'm I'm on the committee. I've been working. With, I've, I'm a past president of the IES. I've been involved in the IES for years. Um, mm -hmm. We did a couple things with the with RP8. For example, is we put it on continuous maintenance. And what that means is that if we want to change a paragraph on on RP8, we don't have to wait for the next cycle. We can just send out an errata or an addendum that says. By the way, remove paragraph X and put in paragraph Y. So that, that takes us to the point where we're able to be much more rapid in terms of implementing. So as things come out, that's our goal. We haven't done a lot of that yet, but it's it's our goal as we move forward to, to do that. Um, we're slowly moving some things in. So the next version of RP8 or, or one of the addendum we're looking at for RP8 is, is to put in a, a uh, luminance selection criteria that that is based on user need rather than than on facility type to say, OK, mm -hmm. you've got you got a highway, you've got this much traffic, you've got this many pedestrians, you've got this many parked cars, obviously not on a highway. So you got a city street with this many pedestrians, this many parked cars and things like that. And we kind of a waiting system that leads you to a, a, uh, a luminance criteria. And so we're trying to move. Um, we're trying to move those things closer to, to that, uh, that limit. So, you know, that's coming out in the next version as, as unfortunately we're a kind of a fickle industry. Sometimes people have to get used to working with these kind of things. And, uh, so that's, those are the next steps is 
we get it out there, we get people working with it more and more and more, and then we refine it. And so it's a process. And, and um, a lot of people say, well, you know, the IS moves so slowly, I'm not going to be involved. But you have to be involved you, because mm-hmm. the, the needle won't move unless people are involved. And, and so you know what? You know what we're doing at Nailed? And I'm just going to give a little plug to Nailed here. So we just had a board meeting today and we're going to be creating an education program. So that goes both ways. So we're going to be creating in our LS Evolve program, we're going to be creating training for, because a lot of lights are not designed, eh? A lot of outdoor lighting is, there's no lighting designer. There's no engineer. It's just a distributor selling a contract or a light fixture. And he goes and puts it up mm. on yep. a building or on a, in a small town or something like that. And nobody's giving it any thought at all. And so what we're doing is we're going to try to train from the bottom. So the policy comes in from the top and then people are pushed up to read the policy and learn it. And we're going to try to do that training on our end to, to tell people that work on order desk is order desks and counter sales and sales reps inside and outside sales reps and the person in the warehouse. We want them all to take this training so they, they start to know. And then when, when the conversations go, there's knowledge coming back to the customer. And yep. so I, I think it takes like the industry just to accept this as an issue. And then all the associations like Nailed and Namco and IES and the NLB and all these different associations start acknowledging that we need to do this. Yeah. We need to do this. The rules are there. Let's do it. And so, and I, I really think that, um, you know, yes, you're right about having, you know, policy at the, for the, for the, the ivory tower, the IES, the light LCs and all that, but it also needs to get down into the counter guys, to the people on the, on the sales well, desks and, and the sales reps and all that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, I give the, give the example of, Years ago, um, I was dating a woman who whose father was a farmer in in uh, well in Leamington, Ontario. And you you go you go down, and I pull onto their property the first time, and they've got a big barn light, pitch black out there, beautiful night sky, and they've got a barn light. And I said to him, this is after I sort of knew him a little bit longer. I didn't want to anger him the first time I met his, met him. Um, You'll want to roll in hot and start criticizing his lights. Eh? <laughs> the, um, I said, well, why do you have a barn light? Well, cause, cause I need security. I'm like, well, do you, your barns are locked. You're, you know, what, why do you need that? So I think a lot of people don't even, don't even ask the question. Why, why do I have the lighting? Why, you know, my neighbor leaves his porch light on all night long. Well, why? Well, because so the the dog can see when he goes out at night. Well, you turn it on when you take the dog out. You don't leave the dog out. Um, so I think one of the fundamental things that everybody has to learn is to ask why. Why are you buying this light? And the counter desk can say, what is your application for this? Or the, the sales desk can say, what is your application? Well, why do you want this light? I, I later on gave him a hard time that actually the barn light on my on, on the place was a uh, uh, was a low pressure sodium. And I realized it was a uh, it was a it was a uh, dating control thing because I'd pull into the barn and I'd drive past underneath this low pressure sodium light and, and my date, I'd look over at her and she looked horrible. And so I just drop her off and, and head on my way. So I figured my, my, uh, my girlfriend's father there was much more intelligent about lighting than maybe I gave him credit for. But, uh, mm. um, but yeah, the, the fundamental thing is that, that everybody, why are we doing this lighting? What, what is the, the fundamental question before any job has to be why? And then you can move on. You can talk about lighting level. You can talk about spectrum. You can talk about time of day. You can talk about adaptive. You can put all those other criteria in if you can fundamentally answer the question why. And that's really the that's really the the goal. I think we need to start educating on is why. I think that's a good place to call it, Jane. I think so too. Oh, oh man. Folks, this has been the uh, Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Dark Size series, hosted by Jane and myself. And we thank Ron Gibbons for being part of the show today. Um, and all of you who listen to the end, nothing but love for you. Keystone Technologies. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. KeystoneTech.com. Oh, yeah. You're joining us on this dark sky journey we're about to go on. That's right. It's going to be a journey. It's going to be fun. We're going to do it right. 
We're going to keep it tight. We're going to keep it easy with Keystone. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Dive in into the deep end with the outdoor fixtures. Keystone always does it right. And then as soon as they found out about the dark sky thing, they said that we're on board 100%. So you go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. And remember, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Yes, where it all started, baby. Look where we've come as, a, as an association all the way to this point. Now we're going to tackle the dark sky issue. That's right. We're going to tackle it. We're going to get after it. We're going to make it happen. We're going to do it through education, through awareness, through association with other associations. Whoa, that's a lot of associations I just said there. But you know what, folks? Go to NAILD.org, where it all started. Don't forget to support the original supporter of the Dark Sky Show, Keystone, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. And Dr. Ronald Gibbons. Hey, man, that was fun as heck. You're a great guy. I enjoyed speaking with you, man. This The people in Dark Sky are such great people. There's so many good people out there that are working on this issue, and we want to push it to the grassroots, to the people that are selling lights every day, to the customers on the counter, to the people on the order desk, to the salesmen in the field, to the inside reps, to the warehouse guys. We want everybody to know about this issue. We want this industry to take it seriously. Now's the time. So, folks, thanks for listening. I speak on behalf of Jane Slade for sure. That we love you guys and thanks for checking this out. Bye for now.